Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Adams Morgan, uh, joined today by documentary filmmaker Krisa Georgie. Krisa was born and raised in Crete and came to the States to continue her studies in marketing. She left behind a promising career as a political, strategy, uh, sorry, a political strategy advisor uh, to pursue her love of wine and storytelling as a documentary filmmaker. She's a producer and director of In the Wine Dark Sea, which tells the story of Cretan wine through 11 native varietals and local winemakers, and Wine Hunter, which profiles new pandemic-era American wine importers. Thank you so much for joining us, Krisa. Thank you for having me, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for those of you joining us for the first time, uh, the premise here is simple. Uh, we each have a wine to share with each other. And uh, today, fittingly, both of our wines come from uh, Crete. Uh, we're getting even more specific than that. Uh, both of our wines come from uh, one of Crete's most promising native white varietals, Vigiano. Crisa uh, is pouring a bottle from Lirakis, which is uh, an estate just south of uh, the capital, Eraklion. Uh, and I have a very different old vine cuvee from Iliana Malahin uh, that is uh, sourced from the southern town, uh, southern region of uh, Malambes, uh, in kind of larger uh, region of Rathimna. Uh, if you like the sound of what we're drinking. Both wines are available for sale at Revelers Hour, Washington's premier wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our Line Hotel studios. Uh, Krisa, thank you again for joining us. I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. Uh, before uh, we get into wine, uh, what was it like growing up in Crete? Growing up in Crete, um it was very different than here, especially during the winter time. Um, we had very mild winters, a Mediterranean climate. So finding myself in the U.S. that has been a struggle for me. I cannot do well with cold the winters, weather. The winter is still hard mm -hmm. for you. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we are recording shortly before Christmas, so it is cold outside. It should be said it does snow in Crete. Uh, you know, it does get cold there. Maybe not close to the coast in Heraklion, but uh, if you go up in the mountains, you know, you can, you can, you know, ski in Crete certain times of year. That is true. We have three mountains. Uh, Mountain Psiloritis is um, 8,050 feet. Yeah. So, yes, we get a lot of snow, uh, but not, not in the coast. I was, yeah, I was there in June, and uh, it was still, still snow-capped a bit. It was more like... Uh, you know, kind of ribbons of snow as opposed to snow cap. But there was still snow there, which is pretty remarkable given how far south you are. And that's, that's an interesting observation because uh, Psloritis Mountain was always with snow. But in the, in the, cap, in the past uh, few years, due to climate change, we, we see that declining oh, every okay. year, wa getting warmer and warmer. Oh, it's like the, the snows of Kilimanjaro, but uh, <laughs> significantly, <laughs> significantly less well-known. Um, you know, how kind of plugged in did you feel to uh, life in mainland Greece, life throughout the rest of Europe growing up on, you know, what historically Crete didn't join the Greek Nation Project till like 1913. Did it feel like you were in this kind of, I don't know, more provincial uh, corner of the country or did you feel connected to, you know, kind of modern Western life? 
It's very much the same. Uh, growing up in the 90s in, in Crete was the same as growing up in any, any kind of uh, capital city in, in Greece. Uh, we came from, I, I, I come from a family of uh, vine growers and we also have olive oil groves, so that has been always a, a part of, of who I am. I get the sense that that's true of pretty much everyone in Crete, though. That is exactly right, yeah. yes. Um, you know, no one is that far removed from the land, and even those that live in urban areas still go back. And, you know, there's, there's still this um, almost like aching nostalgia uh, for, you know, these really traditional Cretan products, of which olive oil and wine are the foremost. But And um, cheese. Yeah, yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of... Yeah, but, I mean, the the... The culture of food there is um, just so bound up in the sense of identity in, in a really special way. that It feels like something that, um, you know, you never lose. I, I rediscovered my identity coming here to, in the U.S., especially in the wine world, because I grew up going every year since I was five years old and the, during the harvest, harvesting grapes. Oh, really? That would, this would have been like unpaid labor, though, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I consider that to be a game. It was fun for us yeah. kids to go and... and uh, was there some kind of carrot at the end of your harvesting journey? Did they entice you with, like, delicious Cretan pastries? Was there, like, a, you know, there's a few, you know, drachma in it? Or, I mean, gyro, it would have been euros at that point. But, uh, euros at that point, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, no. No? It was just a labor of love. The oh, wow. whole family was involved, and uh, except my sister. My sister used to uh, start with the harvest, and then five minutes into cutting grapes, she would take a break. And she would go underneath an olive oil tree, and she would take a nap, and she will wake up at the... Uh, around 10, 10, 30 a.m. where we had the break for a snack. Okay. And then she will continue like that for the rest <laughs> of the day. Uh, was she chided for this or was this just kind of accepted practice? Uh, she was cool like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you make your way ultimately from uh, Crete to the United States? So I moved here uh, 2015 for a vocational training in marketing. Okay. And then I decided to stay. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Um, did you have a sense growing up of what you wanted to do, whether it was stay on the island or get out? I wanted to explore the world. I wanted yeah. to see what else is there. Yeah. But coming from an island, being close to the water was always a must for Okay. Me. Um, and now you live in Baltimore. So, so. I live in Baltimore. Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, it's not, maybe not, the beach is not uh, quite as beautiful as the uh, beaches of Crete, but uh, it is a port town uh, and a famous harbor at the very least. Yes, and very charming as well. Yeah, I, I utterly adore Baltimore. And there's a, there is like a really strong Greek community in Baltimore True. as well. True. Um, is there a strong, you know, specifically Cretan community in Baltimore? It is actually from the island of Carpathos. Oh, okay. It's another island yeah, as yeah. well, because that island was very close. It was very, um, the uh, vocations were around fishing and, and boating. So it made sense for them to come to, to Baltimore as a, as a harbor city as well. From one harbor city to another. Um, 
but you're unique among the Carpathians, or not Carpathians, the, the residents of Carpathos, for, for the sake of being from a significantly larger island. Um, so you came stateside uh, to study. Did you imagine staying here, or was, uh, you know, Baltimore, the Mid-Atlantic, what, what have you, kind of a place that sunk its hooks into you? Uh, definitely Baltimore, defi- definitely Maryland. I, I appreciate, I, I started from New York City. That was it. Okay too large and too yeah. stressful of a that, city that for an island, island girl like me yeah. from a small town. So Baltimore was a better fit. Well, what is, what is Heraklion like? Um, it's like a small version of Athens. Okay. Um, we don't have a um, great road system. Yeah. So uh, if you're visiting in the summer, you have to be equipped with lots of patience. Heard. And you probably do better on like two wheels than you do four. Yes. Yeah. The weather permits that as well. So even oh, okay. during during the winter. Yeah. Um, it's a very dry climate, and uh, people tend to be more flexible with uh, a Vespa or a, a bike. Yes, or or more terrifying, uh, equally. <laughs> um, so you found yourself in New York that didn't fit. Uh, how did you land in Baltimore? Um. It was basically friends and family who, who were here, so it, it made sense for me to, to be here as well. Um, it feels more like home compared to New York. Yeah. People are more hospitable, more open, and um, that's something I always care about. Uh, Baltimore in particular, I have this deep and abiding soft spot for, is very different than D.C. Um, there's this like uh, Baltimore slang called the Baltimore Hun, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know, it, it does, you know, historically it was a very Southern town and, uh, Lincoln famously suspended habeas corpus when the Confederacy moved through Baltimore. So, you know, it does have a little bit of that, you know, South of the Mason Dixon charm to it, um, coupled with its own unique kind of port town, you know, je ne sais quoi. Yes, true. Yeah. True. Um, you came here to study marketing. You worked in politics. Uh, at what point did you pivot uh, into wine and filmmaking? I did. I did um, after marketing. So I came here and I, I saw how marketing and advertising uses a lot of hypnotic language. Uh-huh. So I, I did a two-year study in hypnosis. Oh, wild! And I had a practice having helping people with fear of public speaking, stage fright, confidence issues, and I feel like you have, a, you, have a good, you have a good voice for it, and have like a very measured way of talking that, uh, that feels like uh, it, it could be, you know, hypnotizing. I used to be a radio host back in Greece. Shut up. Oh. Uh, what, was your, what was your show called? <laughs> you're, you're, you're burying all the leads here. I, I was a reporter, so okay. I was doing a, a news Presentation, basically telling the news, and yeah. and then I had a cultural, uh, more fun um, r- uh, show that was about Cretan music. Oh, that's awesome! Um, and you know, for the uninitiated, uh, Cretan music is a distinct and um, you know beloved uh, form unto itself. And and, and they're actually, I mean, the island sufficiently large. There are different forms, you know. So the the lira would be like the most famous Cretan instrument. But I understand if as you go east on the island, you know, they start to use violins, and there's a more like uh, heavy emphasis from like uh, the dodecanese and stuff like that. So it's it's a really 
dynamic scene there. You're so very well versed in <laughs> music and instruments. I am impressed to, uh, to speak I, with someone who has been to Crete and knows so much about it. Uh, well, that, so my favorite thing about going there, and in full disclosure, I went there on someone else's dime. So um, uh, DNS um, is a, an importer of some of my favorite Greek wines, and I got a chance uh, on their time to go uh, visit uh, several Greek islands. But Crete was the one I was most excited to visit. And um, the special thing about it, to my mind, is there's this just level of pride that people take over um, entertaining you as a visitor. I mean, there's even a Greek word for it. They say philoxenia. And um, the hospitality culture is just um, really profound and special there. And, and there's this like fierce sense of identity. Um, and, and it's not Greek identity. It is Cretan identity. It, it is separate and distinct from uh, the, the rest of the country. And, and it extends to everything. You know, I think it extends to, to food first and foremost, and wine as an extension of food, but music um, uh, equally. It is said that Crete can uh, be an, an island of its own and survive without the rest of Greece. Um, the only uh, problem would be the oil, oil reserves. Oh, heard. But that's a problem in a lot of places. Yeah, <laughs> that's especially not, nowadays. That's a unique, uniquely Cretan problem. And they get a lot of wind, so I feel like uh, they, they get a lot of wind, a lot of sun. So if they double down on renewables, I think they could be, you know, much more ener energy independent than they currently are. Um, there's still a, like a Cretan secessionist movement, isn't there? Yes, uh, that's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're not reaching like Brexit level, uh, you know, proportions there yet. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, it, it is, is very much a, a continent unto itself um, and really appealing that way. Um, so you came here. I, I, I imagine it was a shock to be removed from, you know, this culture that you grew up in, were immersed in. Um, did you find that storytelling gave you a way to, um, you know, kind of uh, access, um, you know, your heritage? It was pretty much so that um, storytelling connects people the way that wine connects people. So it really made sense for me to combine the two. Yeah. And the best medium I found to share a story was video. And because of my background in hypnotherapy, I can really, in an interview setting, I can really help people relax and, and tune in and, and bring their best selves and then share their best so stories with me. And that's how uh, documentary filmmaking came about. Oh, that's really exciting. Um, and uh, the project you did uh, on Crete um, in the Wine Dark Sea, which uh, for those of you not familiar with Homeric poetry, is uh, one of the most oft-repeated phrases in both the Iliad and uh, the Odyssey. Um, uh, was that your first kind of major uh, full-length documentary release? Yes, it was the first time I was ever doing anything related to documentary filmmaking. Um, I was studying as a as a hobby with WSET and uh, uh -huh. in, in here in DC uh, Capital Wine School and I saw in the literature I didn't see anything about Crete yeah there was only Santorini Nemea Nausa and that's it and I disagreed with that so I thought <laughs> to change it naturally uh, so you took matters into your own, own hands I, I love that um, and you know to me that's one of the most exciting things about studying wine is uh, in as much as the wine world is vast. There are these ancient forgotten corners of the wine world, and, and Crete, you know, is one of the most important. Uh, that um, is equally one of the most ancient centers of wine production in in the old world, but also 
new in a way. Um, and uh, I think that dichotomy is really, really fascinating uh, to explore. So you chose to tell uh, the story of Wine and Crete uh, through 11 great varietals uh, and 11 producers. Uh, you're uh, sharing with us a wine today from uh, Lirarakis. Uh, that's, that's, I struggle with that one. Uh, Lir- Lirarakis. Lirarakis. La- very, Akis. Uh, very, very well. Uh, yeah, Akis is, uh, is Akis son of? Akis is like... Uh, Akis is small. Small, really? Because I feel like anytime you see Akis on a Greek name, uh, you're dealing with someone from Crete. That is true. Uh, when Ottomans occupied the island, they went, wanted to do, to do some kind of psychological wars to the people to make wow. them feel smaller. So they enforced in every name, they enforced the ending Akis, which means small. So it's diminutive. I didn't realize that. Um, so it was Ottoman trolling. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, that, that's fascinating. Um, and there's, there's still to this day, obviously, no love lost uh, when it comes to uh, uh, Greeks and Turks. But uh, uh, I, I, linguistically, it's fascinating to me that that is an enduring legacy of uh, the Ottoman uh, occupation. Um, was Lirarakis one of the producers you featured uh, for the sake of In, in the Wine Dark Sea? Yes, um, he was. And he was one of the first people to tell me, I don't want to show my winery and promote my winery. I want to promote Crete, Yeah, which really touched me. And, and I, I felt right from the start that I had a unique set of people to deal with um, that didn't want to show off just for themselves, but for the sake of the island. Um, how did you decide on that format, you know, focusing on the native grapes through the lens of different producers? It was, it was quite magical because I, I had no idea what I was doing, honestly. I had a format, like I wanted to make the interviews in a certain way. Uh, I did not know that we had so many grape varieties. All I knew was Llatico for a red variety and Vidiano for the white variety. Going to the island, I realized that we have 15 grape varieties that we know are native to Crete. We are only, uh, commercially, we're only vinifying 11, and I had to figure out a way to to make that happen. Um, So I filmed for a whole month in, in Crete, and I come back to the States, and I had to figure out a the whole story in the editing room. Yeah. And it all came together effortlessly. Um, but I didn't know that will be the, the format from the beginning. Oh, fascinating. Um, did you feel like it was easy to find um, an individual varietal uh, to associate with each producer? Uh, for some reason, every producer had their favorite varietal. Oh, fascinating. And... It was easy, and, and of course, the, the producers were in different locations, so the people who were from the West, they were more likely to be associated with the varieties that we have in the West, the yeah. people that are uh, in the East, um, accordingly. So it was really easy to do that. Yeah, and you know, it's good source material to the extent that Crete is sufficiently large that there are distinct local traditions of working with you know, not only specialized varietals, but specialized styles of wine. So um, in like the Venetian era, that would have been Malvasia di Candia. Candia was the Venetian name for for the island, and that could have come from a host of grapes. Malvasia might have been one of them. Um, often Vidiano, uh, which we're drinking, uh, was, was, was a part of that mix. But 
Um, into the modern era, you have uh, Romeco, which is uh, from the western part of the island, which goes in this like lovably oxidized vinum perpetuum, which the Romans would call like uh, maruvas, and um, they do some of that on the east side of the island too. So that's like this like uh, poles of Crete making these like lovably odd oxidative wines. And and my sadness as someone who loves and revels in that variety is is even today I don't think you see that. Um, you know, necessarily reflected um, in terms of what is available to drinkers stateside. And they're trying to change that because Romeco is an old style of, of the, the way they vinify it. So they're, they're trying to embrace other more modern approaches to it. It's, yeah. it's a grape that um, oxidizes very quickly and it loses its color. So Yeah, so there are a lot of people working with it as like a rosé or like a Blanc de Noir um, style for the fresher wines, but... It's a lovable oddball, and, and, and it produces these really, you know, distinctive, um, you know, sorts of wines. And, and I think, you know, in a more commercial setting, that could be problematic. But I think once you, um, you know, start to embrace the specialness of this distinct local product, you know, product, hopefully it creates, you know, opportunities uh, uh, to distinguish yourself, you know, from other, other wines on the market. Um, what is so special about Vidiano as a grape? You talked about it as, you know, on the white side, you know, kind of uh, the grape that you're familiar with. It is not the most, even to this day, not the most widely planted native um, white grape in uh, uh, Crete, Villana. Villana yeah. is the queen and has been for many, many years because of the incentives of the government. Oh, really? Uh, sadly, they, the government uh, likes to... To separate regions and they say okay this is the grape variety that you are going to focus in in Crete and we're talking about 60s and 70s where the the corporate cooperative movement was yeah. basically uh, all the producers were giving the grapes then there um, so Vilana was the major white grape variety for for many years and uh, then it was encouraged to have international grape varieties. So yeah. the, what, what did the producers do? They ripped all the native uh, old vines and planted uh, Sauvignon Blanc and, and... Syrah, there are a lot of Rhone varietals yes. in, in Crete. You know, of course, there's Bordeaux, like Bordeaux varietals occasionally as well. Um, but, you know, yeah, even, even then, so uh, all of the, um, you know, a lot of the major developments that uh, affected the wine world elsewhere, phylloxera first and foremost among them, didn't come to Crete until very late. Uh, you know, phylloxera didn't make it to Crete until the 70s. This, um, until the 70s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, so being there on the ground, there are still very much these, uh, very much of these pockets of um, unsullied, you know, older vines from, from native grapes. Uh, that's not the case, sadly, I think, you know, for most of the vines in these regions. So you're you're in central Crete. Um, uh, Lirakis is very close to your home, is it not? It is. This vineyard, though, is closer to where Iliana's um, uh, vines are, and we see that in in the prefecture of Rethymno. Uh -huh. um, the the wines tend to be uh, the Vidiano wines tend to be more. Um, expressive and um, it's exciting to taste that as well. 
Yeah. Taste the difference between the two producers. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't realize that. So um, major growing regions just south of um, the capital, Eraklion, uh, Daphnis, um, which just produces a, a massive volume of wine, Ar Arcanus and Peza, which are known uh, more for Coltifali and, and, and red varietals. Um, Primarily Latico in, in Daphnis. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, those are the zones that account for the bulk of commercial wine that comes out of Crete. True. Um, yes. Like I read, ninety percent, um, which a lot. It was a lot of wine. So you have to keep bear in mind. So Crete produces about twenty percent of the wine that comes out of Greece. Ninety percent of that comes from the small pocket just south of Eraklion. Um, and we're kind of talking about the other ten percent uh, yes. today, which is which is <laughs> which is really exciting. Um, because sadly, what happens in those ninety percent zones is you know what you previously alluded to for the sake of commercialization and you know a lot of um, the really interesting, you know, finicky local grapes get ripped out for the sake of um, more productive ones. So part of the reason that the Greek government, um, you know, anointed Vilana as, you know, the show pony was because it's very productive grape. So they were less invested in making, you know, amazing artisanal wine and more invested in making as much wine as they could commercially. And in a cooperative system, there's no economic incentive to make better wine. There's no economic incentive to grow grapes responsibly at a smaller scale. The economic incentive is to grow as much fruit as you possibly can. And the nice thing about a cooperative system is that uh, the price is locked in and you can earn a living that way. So it was, you know, all well-intentioned, uh, but it creates this recipe for sadly eroding, you know, these local traditions and just making, you know, a lot of unremarkable, uh, in the case of Vilana, oxidized wine. Um, is that typically resonated or is it just, you know, plonk? Uh, Vilana, if it's not managed properly in the vineyard, can be very vigorous and yeah. gives wines that are blah. Yeah. You said it best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, there's a time and a place for blah wine, but um, I feel like conditions on the ground here are too special for it. And uh, Vidiano, by comparison, is finicky. Um, it... Um, you know, can produce larger yields, but uh, doesn't naturally. Um, and uh, it does best on bush vines, which are really difficult to, um, impossible to work mechanically. And so, you know, your productive capacity there is significantly lower uh, than it would be with a grape like Villana. The cool thing about Vidiano is it makes wines that are the opposite of Blas. And in an environment like Crete, that is, uh, you know, very much Southern Mediterranean. I think you're at like a 35th parallel there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, you have a grape that, as it ripens, retains acid uh, remarkably well and is, is relatively late ripening. Um, and you need both of those conditions on the ground to make something special out of white grapes in this corner of the world. And uh, I was excited. I didn't realize that uh, this particular vineyard was closer to Rethimno. So Rethimno is just west of uh, Eraklion. Um, and... Uh, it's massive and sprawling, and it, it kind of encompasses both the north and south coast, doesn't it? That is exactly right, and it's the the island. The way it is, it's the the shortest the shortest um, distance from north to the south in the area of Rethimno. Yeah, and uh, it is a stupidly beautiful um, Venetian era um, city, uh, and the old town is. Um, pretty much intact, which is a minor miracle given how long 
um, those citadels were at siege in the 17th century. The Ottomans did their best to burn everything to the ground, but it, it somehow survived intact. And uh, it is romantic and touristy, but in a lovable way, not in like a Santorini stumbling into someone's honeymoon picture sort of way, um, and still has this like distinct uh, identity. I, I really adored that corner of the island. I feel this episode is more like a love letter to Crete. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope it. I, I hope it. I hope it listens that way, and I hope it inspires people to to go there because it is one of those places I think that sinks sinks its teeth into you. And um, you know, it, it's naturally beautiful. Um, I I had been to Santorini. Santorini is naturally beautiful on an alien level. You know, it, it, and and especially you know the central caldera there is just you know, Instagram bait, you know, for, for a reason. Um, what I loved about Crete is, you know, it's naturally beautiful, but there's, there's soul there, you know. Um, uh, there is a pride of place uh, among the people that live there. And, um, you know, its beauty transcends, you know, the photographic, you know, and has everything to do with um, what has grown there, the music that is made there, you know, the lives that are lived there. And, and I don't want to, I mean, Santorini has some of that itself, you know, historically, but... Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that soul has been sold for the sake of, you know, tourism. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, uh, it, Crete doesn't feel that way. Crete, I, I feel in comparison, Santorini and Crete, Crete, Crete doesn't try so much to sell in a tavern, or they, they're just, they're just who they are. And if you like it, great. If you don't like it, great. Yeah. That is, so we have that. People don't, don't want to sell the souls out in, in the sake of tourism, but they will also open their doors and welcome you in their homes. Oh, absolutely. In, in the moment they realize you are a foreigner. Oh, yeah. And there's no, I get really frustrated with this sometimes for the sake of, you know, interactions. Like if you are in a shop buying something, you know, if you're, you know, talking to someone um, at a restaurant. If they find out you're visiting, um, you know, you're not in for, you know, a, a polite, you know, 30-second conversation. You're in for, you know, a deeper, you know, uh, 10 to 15-minute conversation. And, and sometimes, like, the East Coaster in me, you know, gets really, like, like uh, <laughs> you get jumpy. Uh, but um, there, it's, it's special. Like, I, I, I bought my wife, uh, so I, I went to Crete, um, essentially on a business trip, uh, but uh, my wife wasn't with me and, you know, I desperately want to bring her back at some point, but I, I went to this jewelry shop in Rathimno and I brought her something to take back and, and the guy found out I was visiting and I ended up there for a solid half hour and, of course, I left with some olive oil that his, you know, family makes and, you know, every interaction is, is sort of like that. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's hard not to fall in love uh, a little bit. Um, the other cool thing for me about visiting was that uh, um, it is isolated to some extent, but uh, the wine scene feels really cosmopolitan. So um, the Liraraki's family, this is a winery founded um, by uh, the uh, father and uncle, I think, of the, of the current producer um, uh, in the 60s, late 60s, but they didn't bottle their own wine till the 90s, um, which is a pretty common story um, throughout Greece, but particularly in Crete. Yes. Um, but today you have this like lovable, like European, you know, kind of cultural polyglot. So 
Um, the current owner, his mother's Dutch, I think. Um, and though uh, it's a female winemaker, um, uh, and uh, she is Cretan and Palestinian, uh, which is just kind of amazing. Yeah, it's very uh, cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it is. You know, you have people who are rooted in the sense of place, but by the same token, it's not. You know, it's not parochial. You know, there's it's not limiting. And uh, I, um, it, it was exciting to see that, and it's exciting to see people like interacting with the wine world more globally, um, but also secure um, with uh, a sense of what is special about the the, the place that they're working in. Um, and, and, and it feels like people are wanting to make the most of, um, you know, the local source material in a way that I think sometimes is missing um, in, in Greece historically. And Linarakis Winery is one of the wineries that really embraced tradition as well as innovation. So... Um, Partly, uh, we owe to Lirarakis Winery that we have uh, great varieties like Vidiano. Vidiano, 15, 20 years ago, nobody knew about it. Was, it. it was almost extinct. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll include a bunch of uh, links. Um, you know, the other thing exciting to me, too, is there are a lot of really great English language authors about Greek wine. First and foremost, uh, Yanis Karakasis um, has a blog that, if you want to learn more about all this stuff, is kind of a deep dive. But... The content's amazing and largely free, um, and he is one of the most expert voices on wine, period, you could ever want to meet, but certainly in the English language, the most expert voice you could want to, um, you know, kind of uh, find for the sake of Cretan wine. He's actually from Cyprus, but um, he writes a lot about uh, the wines of the island. I'm just really excited. Yeah. Uh, in the documentary, though, we had uh, the master of wine, Kostadinos Lazarakis. Oh, yeah, who wrote another seminal book about uh, the wines of Crete called, I think, The Wines of the Greece. Wines of Greece. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we have Vidiano, we have other white varieties like Plito, Melisaki, Tartas. Well, they saved, they saved uh, Daphne. Um, Daphne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is exactly the same name as, it, it's, it smells like bay leaf. Yeah. That's exactly what the name Daphne means. Yeah. It's bay leaf. Yeah, good branding. Yeah. I mean... We want to make it easy for people. Right? Yeah, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. And and um, you know they were very, you know, in turn in the in the kind of timeline of um, modern resurgence of wine in Crete, uh, they were early kind of protectors of and guardians of um, and uh, purveyors of wines from native varietals. That's true, and they have a beautiful vineyard slash museum that you can go and see all the varieties in in a small plot of land nice couple of rows and you can see all the the varieties and if you go in august you might be able to participate in harvest now that you, can lend, you can lend a hand yeah yeah or sleep under an olive tree uh, and that, wait for and wait for you know your your mid mid-morning snack <laughs> exactly yeah huh? yeah um now uh, why did you pick the vidiano um of of all the, the wines that they produce? I think Vidiano is a really exciting grape variety, uh, partly because how um, drought and heat resistant it is. And I think it's gonna be the next Assyrtiko for all of Greece. There are a lot of producers that are uh, from Northern Greece that they're uh, trying to plant and, and see how Vidiano does in, oh, really? in their climates. We also have people from Burgundy trying Vidiano and, oh, cool. and uh, 
here in, in California, in yeah. Paso Robles. We have a producer that has planted Vidiano, and in about two years, we're going to see some examples from California yeah. and Vidiano. And I'm sure the Australians will be close behind. They already researching the Vidiano grape because of its drought and heat resistance yeah. with the upcoming, the, the eminent climate change yeah. that they're experiencing there. Um, yeah, it, it is a, it's a special grape to my estimation, uh, and it's fascinating to me in emerging regions, um, diversity of source material and, and a wealth of native grapes can be both a gift and a curse. You know, to some extent, it's, it's just like glorious to have all this untapped potential, but for consumers, it can kind of muddy the waters. And so you have to find a way as, you know, a winemaking culture kind of, um, you know, becoming more outward facing to um, embrace that potential to um, rediscover as much as possible, you know, as many different um, expressions uh, as you can, but simultaneously to actively and strategically promote a few, you know? Because uh, if, if you, you know, come in with too many, then uh, it's, it's hard to make a dent. Uh, and and um, there's always a tension uh, there, to, to my mind. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the exciting thing about Vidiano is, is not only is it just a matter-of-factly delicious wine, but it has so many different faces. Um, and, you know, people always want to know what would you compare it to. I mean, there are people that make... You know, you mentioned Burgundy, a Chardonnay comparison. Um, I don't know how apropos that that is. You know, something about the the aromatics are, are very different than, than Chardonnay, maybe. Um, oh, oh yes, um, I would. I it's would, almost more Chenin-like. Uh, I would be yeah. I agree with you. It's it's closer to Chenin than than Chardonnay. But yeah, it's almost more Chenin-like, but it has some like ripe Gruner Veltliner like Tropicalia tendencies uh, in, in some instances too. So, and it's very much its own thing. Uh, uh, so, you know, just let Vidiano be Vidiano. Exactly. I like that. <laughs> the Cretan tour, the wines of Crete can get behind that as a, uh, uh, like an organizing principle. But you're um, right. We have to be more clear to, and, and say to the consumer, if you think Crete, think of this great for us. Yeah, it's, it's hard because you want to, and you want to find a gateway drug, you know, uh, for, for people. Um, and then, you know, they get into Vidiano, they, they accept the fact that Crete makes, you know, world-class wines, and then they're more likely to try, you know, with Thropsateri or Daphne or whatever, what else you're, you're into. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to do all of those things all at once. Um, Have you found that the name is an, um, a barrier to entry? Because um, you, you're pronouncing the names very, very been, eloquently and, and clearly <laughs> and very correctly. I've been, I've been there. I find, uh, I actually find Greek a lot easier than French. My French accent is embarrassing. Uh, my wife says uh, it's the one thing that keeps me relatable as a wine professional. Um, I attribute it to the fact that Spanish was my second language. And Spanish is very phonetic. Not that French isn't. French has rules. It's just... Um, you know, it's, it's not phonetic in the same way. You don't pronounce everything. And Greek just makes more sense to me that way. You know, German makes more sense to me that way. Italian makes more sense to me that way. And and, um, uh, and having been there, there's like a musicality to it that I think is, mm -hmm. is pretty uh, easy to, to pick to pick up on. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, going to a place, you know, helps, helps a lot, even if you're, you know, kind of tone deaf and, you know, don't hear that well in the first place. So... Um, I don't. I don't know for the sake of consumers. I there is always this uh, unfamiliar uh, 
this wine is in a foreign language sort of bias that can be limiting uh, if you're trying to sell something. But I, th I, th I hope that we've moved past that as a wine drinking culture. And I hope that it's exciting. You know, I, I hope at this point, you know, it's as alluring as it is, you know, intimidating. Uh, but I recognize by the same token, if, if you're um, trying to move a pallet of wine from Crete, you know, it feels like a, a barrier. It is. It yeah. is like that. Um, in, in making the documentary, I had um, different wine professionals and consumers um, try wines from Crete and comment on camera. None of them, and, and we're talking about experienced wine professionals uh, in the East Coast, they hadn't tried uh, wines from Crete before. It was totally foreign for them, which I found really interesting. And then I met you. <laughs> and you have in both of your restaurants you have wines from Crete and I'm so grateful because I can go and enjoy the amazing food that you're, you're making in, in both restaurants and have how cool is that to have uh, wines from, from my island well, no, I mean, the, in Washington D.C. Yeah, I mean to the extent that we serve Mediterranean cuisine you know a, a Mediterranean wine list feels incomplete without something from, from Crete and people have really um I think I think about the broader history of wine, and, and, and people are really short-sighted. You know, so much of what um, the marketplace, um, you know, kind of values is is a creature of the past half century. You know, is is a post World War II phenomenon, and there are all these corners of the wine world. You know, if we were doing this podcast in you know the 18th century, you know, Crete would be one of the first first you know uh, you know things on our list. If we were going to talk about you know any kind of sweet wine, which was arguably the most important wine of the day, you know, we would have to talk about Malvasia de Candia. Just, it just happens that, you know, you had a bad century or two. Um, and you can't hold that against, you can't hold that against or anybody. Four. Yeah, you yeah. can't, you can't hold that against anybody. And, and, you know, to me, one of the most things about, interesting things about studying wine is, is taking on that history and understanding that history and, and understanding the trajectory of it all and the untapped potential of it all. And um, the most special places I've been to have been the ones that have this sense of enduring sense of tradition, but are, you know, in the midst of rediscovering it. I, th I think there's something special about that act of, it's both rediscovery and reinvention, you know, um, because, you know, making single varietal wine in these places is not necessarily traditional. You know, they just made whatever. Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, if it was white, it was white, it was red, it was like Brusco or something like that. And, and you know, your uncle made it and you just drank it. And, um, you know, that's very different than what modern consumers are used to. And, and that's not necessarily a way of maximizing the potential of what this place has to offer. But by the same token, there, there is just so much there. Um, and it's tied to all this other stuff for the sake of the way people live their lives. And, you know... The food they eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know... That to me is more exciting. It's always more exciting to, to be and, and live in that moment than to live in a moment where you're visiting Bordeaux, you're visiting Burgundy, and you're just another Mercedes Benz showing up at a place that is entertaining, you know, people with deeper pockets than you ever have. Um, and you know, they're not opening up their homes to you. Um, <laughs> they don't have. That would be a first. Yeah, they, they don't. They don't. They don't have to. There's no. There's no economic. I mean, and and, and it's, it's not about economics at the end of the day. You know, it is, it is truly cultural. Um, and uh, you know, that's that's what really excites me about the place. Um, let's just talk kind of uh, in terms of flavor profile. So I love how racy um, the 
uh, Lira Haki says, I haven't had this wine in, in, a, in a minute. Um, uh, and it's, it's really bright um, and salty. Uh, uh, and I just, you know, it's, it's just like, it's a little slammable, but it's not, you know, not in a uh, forgettable kind of way. It's just, it's just wildly refreshing. Um, it is I, refreshing, and that comes, um, everyone who has tried wine from Crete, uh, especially a white wine like, uh, like this one, uh, they, they think of Crete and they think of hot, dry summer. And that is uh, what anybody would expect as a cooked wine, like a, a warmer, more tropical wine. This wine keep, retains its, its acidity because Crete, we don't plant a lot of vines, especially in that part of the island in, in the coastal area. We plant on slopes and up in, in the mountains. So they have up to two or three degrees Celsius. How much would that be in Fahrenheit? Uh, I, I'm terrible at that conversion. Uh, it is uh, times uh, nine over five plus, uh, plus 32, whatever the, okay. <laughs> for, for the conversion, so it would just be times nine over five. So it's like, uh, uh, I think it's nine over nine fifths. Uh, um, yeah, it would be like, Four to five degrees. There is there is four or five degrees of difference when it, when you go up in the mountains and the and sometimes it feels like more than that. Exactly. Because yeah. you get you get more wind, you uh, more circulation of the air there as well. Yeah. And also in all the part like the the majority of European countries, if you plant a north facing uh, vineyard is a bad thing. In Crete, it is what's what's beneficial for uh, for the vine because we avoid the the uh, hot winds coming in from it's Africa. Sirocco, right? Oh wow. I know. Yes. I know my uh, my Mediterranean wind game is pretty strong. Yeah. Um but yeah, but I mean that's not universally the case. I mean in a lot of um so we have two wines here and then actually um uh I had thought that almost all the, you know, um the greatest vineyards in Crete were, were more north-facing for that reason. Um, and then uh, I visited Ileana Malahin. So we, I, I didn't realize this until I did deeper digging on the Lira Rockies, but two uh, female winemakers represented here and two just like diametrically opposed expressions of this grape. So, um, you know, something citrusy, saline, uh, bright, you know, more Chablis-like, um, if we're making a Chardonnay analogy for the, the sake of uh, the Lirarakis um, Vidiano, and then uh, for the sake of our second wine, which comes from Ileana Malahin, uh, and is her old vine cuvee. Um, old vine's always kind of murky for the sake of uh, definition, but in this case, you're dealing with 80 plus year old uh, vine source material. And this is from uh, Malembes, which is um, the southern uh, part of the island, and a lot of south facing slopes. Um, you know, just kind of welcoming that hot, dry desert, you know, sweeping off the Sahara, the Sahara sort of wind. And, um, leaning into it and still making a wine that is like bright and saline, but so different in terms of the character of fruit. How would you describe the the fruit on on uh, Ileana's kind of older older vine cuvee? The, the aromatic intensity is so much more. I mean, yeah, you, and you it's don't just, have to bring it close to your nose, and you can smell all these tropical yeah uh, white and, fruits. And it's kind of a fun case study in what old vines give versus younger vines. Um, you know, they just have, they have more to say. Um, uh, you know, they have more, they have a depth of experience and, and a wealth of uh, extraction and concentration for the sake of minuscule yields. And you can see how, uh, especially now after the wildfires they had to face last, last summer, these old vines are 
uh, amazing, amazing fighters because um, they have been, they, they were burned, but uh, Ileana is set on reviving this, uh, these uh, vines. They have deep roots, so that makes them more able to reborn, I guess. Yeah, so Ileana is a, a young woman. Um, uh, she is late 20s, early 30s uh, at this point. Late 20s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a total superstar uh, and has kind of created her own wine culture. So um, worked with local growers and encouraged them to not rip up their old vines and encouraged them to uh, work organically. Um, and, uh, you know, through the strength of her own will, kind of remade local wine culture around... Um, you know, two kind of showpiece varietals for the sake of Vidiano and um, Liatico uh, for the sake of red wines and really wanted to understand not only individual grapes but individual sites uh, for the sake of what do different corners of the island have to offer when it comes to um, uh, these varietals. Uh, the bulk of our wines are in um, Malambes, which is uh, just kind of like just south of, of Rethimno city proper and um, was devastated, sadly, this summer by wildfires, and, and um, she lost the vast majority, or, or the vast majority of her vines were affected. What is pretty remarkable about this old vine source material, though, is that um, there is potential for the vines to regenerate. Um, it'll be three to five years before the, um, you know, the worst affected are, are able to, um, but they can, and then on top of that, she makes some of the greatest olive oil on the island, and uh, the rate of return on that is even... Um, longer. So, um, you know, those trees potentially can regenerate as well, which is a minor miracle um, uh, for me. But, um, you know, that's a 10 year rate of rate of return. And uh, uh, that is just a, a I mean, it is a, a catastrophe in the, in the life of someone that uh, is devoted to this project of, um, you know, kind of reviving uh, uh, this uh, forgotten local culture. But by the same token, um, she is very much dedicated to rebuilding. And Ileana has created this microeconomy in, in the, the village of Melabes, and she's representing all these producers. And, you know, it's not easy to go to a 70, 80-year-old man and tell them, you know, you've been uh, cultivating your vines in that way for, for all these years. You're doing now, it all wrong. Now you have to do it my way. Yeah, yeah. And they listen to her, and they have created this this um, renaissance of Vidiano in in that in that area. Yeah, and I mean not not only that, but Liatico as well. And um, you know, I asked her that question. Uh, I, had the, I had the lucky uh, chance to visit her both in Santorini, uh, where she makes um, uh, a Sirtico blend from really old vines, and and in Crete. Um, and yeah, she said initially it was slow going, but now. Um, people are actively looking to work with her. Um, and, you know, it, it, it takes on this momentum. And I think the, the most special thing about it is she has made her own industry. You know, it's, it's not just about her, you know, individual wine. She is sustaining this community of, of, of growers there in a way that, you know, transcends an individual label. Exactly. So she has encouraged a whole generation of, of uh, people in their early 20s to stay in the area and not flee towards the the major the bigger cities and and that is remarkable 
And she, uh, she actually grew up in, uh, I think her dad's a TV, like a cameraman. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And uh, so she grew up in Athens. Uh, and, um, but she spent summers in, in Crete, which is, was an often case. So um, there are native Athenians, but, you know, Athens became this city that people migrated to from everywhere. Um, and she talks about feeling more at home in Crete than she ever did in Athens. And she went to analogy school in Athens. And she talks about just every day wishing she was in Crete um, and like having pictures of the village on her and not going out at all and just wishing, <laughs> wishing she was. And, you know, that, that sounds kind of like trite, but then you meet her and it's totally true. Um, and she like, she doesn't bump, you know, um, trap rap or anything on, uh, she like is bumping like Cretan public radio, like traditional Cretan music on the way from one vineyard to, to the did? next. She did? Oh no, she, she does. And then she, uh, <laughs> Uh, she actually, uh, she wanted to make sure we got to experience some for herself. So she had, she like made some calls and had a, like a Lyra player, uh, show up at the winery for us and her mom cooked for us, which is amazing. Uh, you had the best experience, I know, I know, Bill. I know, I know. Her mom, her mom was awesome. Her mom's like chain smoking and making us, uh, like, uh, lamb ribs and snails, uh, which yeah. I, which I you, adore. You tasted snails? I love snails. So I've always loved snails. Um, you're my new best friend. You know that. <laughs> well, no, and like snails, I didn't realize how, how like, uh, uh, uniquely like Cretan snails are. And they're like a million different preparations for them. Uh, but I was traveling with some Psalms who are less like excited about the snails. So I ended up eating more than my fair share of snails. Like they... you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, it is very much like uh, get your hands in there. Um, yeah, it's not like, it's not, you know, hope cuisine or anything along those lines. It's just like honest, amazing food. And um, cheese is a big thing. Greens are a huge thing. Greens is basically what makes uh, people from Crete live long. Live forever, yeah. Or live until uh, their late 90s and be able to be completely and be sentient. Mo- mo- not like, mobile. Yeah, and Not and like most Americans live into their late 90s. Like, uh, but uh, yeah, be like, you know chatting friends and, you know, making snails. Um, yeah. 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 And drinking wine. I remember my great aunt, she was um, 92 years old, and every day she would wake up, um, make her coffee, and, and she would prepare her lunch, lunch bag, uh, before she went into the vineyard or the olive, gro- olive grove. And uh, she would always have a piece of cheese, a piece of bread. What kind of cheese are we eating? Um, goat. It was okay. Heard. Whatever she she would make on her own because yeah, there aren't from her own goats. There aren't really cows on the island. It's yes. like it's a goat. It's like a goat, goat and, and sheep. And sheep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and then she would have uh, half a bottle of wine. Yeah. Uh, as part of her daily daily lunch. Yeah, but and, and the greens are so cool too because these are like. Cretan greens are most people's weeds. They're like, uh, they're mm-hmm. like forage, you know, and, and they're like hearty, bitter. And one of the most traditional dishes is kind of like a cooked down bitter. And, and I, I, I love, I love that stuff. I, I don't know what it is in, in me, <laughs> but I, I just like, I like the bitter. I like that way of eating. Um, and you know, you always kind of start, or from what I understood, you always kind of start with just like a little mezede and there's always yeah. greens, there's always cheese, there's always, olive oil and they they do this uh 
Uh, they always put out herbs and salt with the oil, which I hadn't, I hadn't had before I went to Crete. And I don't know, did they do that for the tourists or did they do that for themselves? No, it's part of how, how we cook. Yeah, we we yeah. have so many herbs and so many native herbs and we're, we're big into teas as well. Oh, and, heard. Um, uh, all these, I found that uh, especially I can, I can taste, I can smell some of the herbs in Ileana's uh, Vidiano. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little bit like of a, sage. Yeah, it's like a dried herbal leaf, too. Uh, and it's such a, it's such a complex wine. Um, uh, I utterly adore this bottle. Sadly, this cuvee will probably not <laughs> be made for um, a succession of vintages. Uh, there is a, a Kickstarter for her. So, um, you know, if you like the sound of all this and you want to support an amazing, um, you know, local wine economy, an amazing female winemaker, um, I, I will post a link to that um, when uh, we air this episode but it's, it's such a dynamic wine, such a special wine. Now, um, you know, that's expensive, you know, and, and her wines retail for more than um, a lot of commercially available uh, uh, Greek wines. But, uh, you know, for someone like her, having visited, there's this through line for the sake of the people that you're ultimately supporting uh, through the simple purchase of a, a bottle of wine. And, and, and it almost feels like something worth investing in um, uh, uh, by, you know, by the bottle. And... Um, and I believe people should know, and, and I believe when they know, they care. Yeah. Um, wine is supposed to bring us pleasure. Uh, and when you, you buy a food product, because wine is also part of the food chain, um, and, and you know that apart from the pleasure you're getting, you're also helping a whole uh, economy, um, a whole village of producers uh, to make their, their, their living and uh, crea keep creating these wines. I really appreciate that you opened this bottle today because uh, because of the wildfires, we won't be able to taste anything like this for probably the next five years. Who knows? But that's probably one of the last bottles we can find from this, yep. uh, this cuvee. No, it's been a pleasure sharing with you. Um, so I have a bit of verse, as I as I threatened, and um, uh, this is longer one. This is I'm, I'm indulging poetry because uh, um, I thought you would appreciate it. So, Krisa, uh, you responded to one of my emails um, with uh, a a quote of your own, uh, and I fell in love with you a little bit. Uh, it was a a kind of a dreary, rainy day. Uh, and this is just in the course of like uh, email, like regular email, email correspondence. You dropped a quote from Nikos Kansantzakis um, uh, because you wanted to let me know you're wearing bright colors on a gray day. Uh, you have your brush, you have your colors, you paint the paradise, then in you go. I, I love that. I, it's one of my favorite uh, 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 quotes because it gives you the empowerment uh, that, you know, you have everything you need to make your dream come true. So go out there and do it. Even on a dreary, drab, uh, cold, gray, rainy winter's day. So this is um, uh, from Odysseus Elitis, um, who is uh, kind of one of the, not kind of, a very much uh, foremost 20th century Greek poet. Um, this is obviously an English translation. He's a no, he won the Nobel Prize in 1979, something like that. Um, this is for Ephesos, so a couple, a couple things for the sake of understanding this. Um, Ephesos is a um, major Greek um, uh, city uh, on Asia Minor near uh, modern uh, Ishmir. 
Um, it uh, was home to the Temple of Artemis, which was, I didn't realize this until I did some digging, but the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, so we're talking a, a magnificent place. And, and this is a poem that's a little bit like uh, Shelley's Osmandius. You know, we're lamenting what once, what once was and, and hoping for, for something else. And I'll have some thoughts thereafter. But uh, this is for Ephesus. It's long. Bear with me. Freely beside me, the vineyards are running and unbridled remains the sky. Wildflowers trade pine cones, and one donkey bolts uphill for a little cloud. Saint Heraclitus' day, and something's up that even noses can't diagnose. Tricks of a shoeless wind snagging the hem of face nightgown and leaving us in the open air, Capricorns exposed. Secretly I go with all the loot in my mind for a life unbowed, unbowed from the beginning. No candles, no chandeliers, only a gold anemone's engagement for a diamond feeling its way to where? Asking what? Our moon's half-shadow needs you to console even the graves, homo-ethnic or not. The crux is that the scent of earth lost even to bloodhounds with its weeds, onions, and creeks must be restored to its idiom. So what? A word contains you, peasant of night's green, Ephesos, Forefather, sulfur, phosphorus, your 14th generation inside the orange groves, gold words, sharing the scapel's chisel. Tense as yet unpitched, others midair, lost poles suddenly grinding. Sermons rise from the seafloor of the facing coves, twin sides for theater or temple, fresh valley springs, and other curly streams of thus and so. If other wisdom plans circles of clover and dog grass, another world might live just as before your fingerprint. Letters will exist. People will read and grab history's tale once more. Just let the vineyards gallop and the skies remain, unbridled as children want it, with roosters and pine cones and blue kites, flags on St. Heraclitus Day, child's is the kingdom. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, not, not part of the poem. Uh, uh, I utterly adore uh, all the imagery in, in the mix there. Um, uh, uh, something worth knowing about uh, Heraclitus. Uh, so Heraclitus is an ancient Greek philosopher. Um, uh, he was called the obscure, the weeping philosopher. Uh, one of his major kind of um, philosophical tenets was the uni unity of opposites. Uh, so this idea that you know pleasure and pain are cut from the same cloth. They're different expressions of the same thing. Uh, he's famous for such idioms, or, like axiomatic expressions, as uh, no, no man ever steps in the same river twice. Uh, and uh, this one's good. Uh, God is day and night, winter and summer, war and peace, surfeit and hunger. Uh, and I like that for the sake of particularly uh, uh, Ileana's wine. Um, uh, God is fire uh, that devastates uh, the vineyard. Uh, God is uh, natural scourge, product of our own making for the sake of fire, you know, climate change that uh, will not uh, give us the blessing of this wine for five vintages on end, but God is equally uh, the persistence, the endurance, the regeneration uh, that Ileana will manifest and uh, the promise of future vintages of this wine to come. Very well said. <laughs> I have my moments. Um, uh, thank you again so much, Krista, for joining us. Uh, uh, last question here. So um, uh, you've got... Uh, a newer documentary uh, um, uh, in, uh, in the works. Has it just been released, uh, uh, the latest about um, pandemic era, career changing wine importers? 
Yes, so um, Wine Hunter is the name of that documentary, and it's about um, changing uh, careers in midlife, uh, dealing with uh, all the realizations we had during the pandemic uh, about what our work uh, looks like and what our life, what the what is the meaning of our life and and work. Um, so I I followed the path and the, the journey of um, Russ Lorber, a Baltimore Italian wine importer. An amateur musician, it should be said. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, um, I followed him in Italy, and I, I was recording the whole time he was meeting his producers. And then um, he allowed me to, to see all the behind the scenes of wine importing so we we show that in the film when when you go to the restaurant and show your wines when you go to the 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 wine shop uh, when you have to do the taxes when you talk to your um sales uh, representatives and all these little moments that we don't really see in in the warehouse and in the dogs receiving the containers of wine um we see all that stuff and we see the love and care every wine importer puts in, in the U.S. And then I have other projects in the works. Uh, oh, brilliant. Oh, I, I thought, uh, before we get to the other project, I, I, I thought that particular project felt a little bit autobiographical, you know, uh, for, the sake, for the sake of the career, career changing. It felt like a way to kind of, um, you know, touch on themes that, uh, you know, uh, were relevant for you. But I, I love the idea that, um, there was this kind of recentering for a lot of people that happened uh, in the midst of pandemic, and wine was one way out of that. Yes, exactly. Um, then uh, I realized that in every film that I make about wine, uh, we talk about climate change. So the next film is about wine and climate change. As as uh, we see the examples of uh, mid Atlantic uh, wine growers and how they're dealing with. Uh, the changing climate and the extreme rain and, and hail um, events. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, showcasing you as part of this, <laughs> this film as well. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to being showcased. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it, it feels like a fun lens. Uh, I can't think of, I mean, there are other certainly, um, you know, wine documentaries uh, out there, but... Uh, it's exciting to have a new voice for the sake of someone, um, you know, telling different stories uh, when uh, it comes to this industry. And, and I love the idea of telling stories that, you know, are being told uh, when it comes to, um, you know, uh, a forgotten and historic and ancient corner of the wine world like Crete or um, the journey of wine from the old world to your glass when it comes to importers or the effect of climate change on an otherwise, you know, neglected region uh, in the Mid-Atlantic. Exactly, and it's so cool that we can see these films now through through Amazon Prime, and and uh, it's available to to anyone who wants to watch. Uh, how how do you fund? Uh, just out of curiosity, this, <laughs> this whole this whole project. How do I fund it? Yeah. Oh God, with blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, is, that's like the that's your favorite part of the exercise. Needless to say, it's it's not always fa fun <laughs> and favorite, but it's necessary. So yeah. the important thing for me is to share th these stories with the world. Yeah. So I make anything in my power to do so. Yeah.
Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's thank been you for having uh, me. such a pleasure to have you with us. Um, for those of you listening, if you want to try either of these wines, um, uh, we'll have the Lirarakis available in larger quantities. Um, sadly, Ileana's wine in vanishingly small quantities, but worth um, uh, accessing uh, if, if you like. Uh, at Reveler's Hour, which is Washington's premier wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our uh, Line Hotel studios. Uh, thank you for listening, as always. Uh, stay tuned and stay thirsty for more of The Universe in a Glass.